Remain standing for the reading of God's Word from the 13th chapter of the book of John. John has somewhat divided his gospel up into two parts. A shorter half, as we will begin reading, begins in chapter 13 with this wonderful upper room discourse, all of which has its context as he has brought us and ushered us into the very place that that begins. We'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 17. Now hear the word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from the Father and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our gracious Father, we pray, even now, as your word is meditated upon, as we think about even this context of this humble servant who had just entered into Jerusalem as king, we pray that your spirit would put it together for us and warm our heart with its truth not merely to our heads, but down into the heart of hearts where praises will flow, where trust is given, and our identity with Christ will be fixed and known. Our Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit about upon the preaching of the word, that we would receive this as worship, and as we deliver it, it would be worship. And we pray, Spirit, that you would guide us into the application specific to our own lives, not only this day, but through this week. And we pray that you would not leave us the same. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I contemplated the week before us, I, it's always a difficult time coming to Holy Week and to Christmas after 22 years, thinking about the, a, a new message and a new sermon. But I thought in a deeper way, what passage would carry us along in the narrative of this coming week? And I landed here in John 13. This is the day that the church historically and in some ways universally today remembers Jesus entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and finally to finally establish that long-awaited kingdom here upon the earth. The narrative of the week is filled with irony and twist. The crowds one moment shout, Hosanna! In the highest only shortly they would be resounding, crucify him, crucify him. Let Barabbas go. The foot washing is the last thing that we or the disciples would expect at such a time as this. And it too is filled with mystery and intrigue. Jesus chose the very time of Passover where He would enter into His final week of His ministry here upon earth. He was very aware of His vocation and His calling and how it all lined up with Scripture. There wasn't a detail that was missing. At this time, Jerusalem would have been swollen with the the crowds of tens of thousands of people who did not even have enough room in the inns, and they would all be out in the streets and in their huts and in their friends' and relatives' homes. And there was festivity in the air. The people heard that Jesus was coming. And Lazarus, who he had recently raised from the dead, was going to be there too. When we think of this final week to Jerusalem that would end in Jesus' crucifixion and burial, what did it do? What did the cross achieve? And what is it doing for you today? That's the concern this morning. That's the question before us. Because the power of the cross lives on The cross of Jesus Christ changed everything here on this earth. And the world has never been the same since. And there upon the cross was the greatest display of power that the world has ever known. The power of love. The love that defeated all of the dark forces and powers And as we enter into this holy week and go through our week ahead, it is my prayer and hope that there will be a renewal in your life. For some of you, I've already begun specifically praying for that by name. A renewal in the power of the gospel. A renewal of love. A renewal in your marriage. A renewal in those relationships that have grown cold or broken. 
a victory over sin and despondency would be refreshed and family worship would be invigorated and worries and fears would be dispelled where love would cast them all away. For perfect love does just that. Where joy and hope are renewed in Christ's power of the cross. Because the cross of Jesus changes everything. As we consider the world's greatest event in all of history, this lowly scene with Jesus kneeling down with His disciples gathering water and girding on His waist a towel and began to wash His disciples' feet really stands out in the midst of all the festivity and the loud shouting of the hosannas that had earlier gone in the darkness that's about to come. John has given us a different perspective than the other synoptic Gospels of Jesus' life and ministry. The Upper Room Discourse takes up many pages and how wonderfully instructive and how tender this time is when Jesus is preparing His disciples for the greatest crisis they would ever know. But how did John bring us up to this point where Jesus is on the floor cleaning His disciples' dirty feet? Well, John, as you may recall, began with that all-creative Word becoming flesh and revealing the glory of God. And here we see Jesus summing up all that has come before and all that is in this great humility and loving redemption of His disciples cleaning them for service. We see Peter's reaction here, not understanding what was going on. And he said, no, Lord, because it was fitting for any disciple of a teacher or a rabbi to do any of the menial work that a slave would do except for one, and that is to wash the rabbi's feet. So even the students weren't expected to stoop that low. And here is the Master. And Peter says, not so, Lord. And we see the discourse, no, Peter, if I don't do this, you have no part of me. Oh, well, then just go ahead with his overreaction and impulsive spirit. You know, Peter, he wasn't going to understand it then, but he would later. And John reveals Jesus' vocation and living for the glory of God and rescuing humanity from its desperate plight. The foot washing scene points forward to the prosperity of the gospel and cleansing centuries of filth from its sin as it goes out even from the feet of these that would be sent in the power of the Spirit of God, which is already being foreshadowed as he later then comes to say in John 20, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And to this scene, John has revealed to us why it is necessary how this great redemption will be accomplished. 
The accuser, the dark force that has plagued Jesus all of his life, had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. One of his own followers would be the one through which the channel of Satan would be used in all force to bring Jesus to trial. It would be right after this that Satan would actually enter into Judas himself. And Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. The greater context of John's Gospel brings to a greater understanding of this humble event. John places this foot-washing scene on the broad context of Israel's history in the world. And so while Jesus stands up after He finishes uh, washing His disciples' feet, and He begins to explain the surface level of the meaning of this, it is within the broad context of John's Gospel that the full meaning and impact will come to its full light after the resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. As you might recall John's prologue at the beginning, he says, and he opens up his Gospel this way, in the beginning. Which reaches far back all the way to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning is how the Scripture opens. So John's Gospel begins just like Genesis. It's agreed that John has focused a large portion and emphasized his Gospel on the temple. And on Jesus and the temple. And on Jesus upstaging the temple, and about Jesus speaking about the demise of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and about what Jesus is doing is something that the temple could not do. As we reach back into the opening of our Bibles that John's Gospel alludes to, we have in Genesis 1 and 2 this creation narrative describing the very perfect temple. The garden was a single heaven and earth reality. The one world where two realities of heaven and earth are joined together. That's what a temple is. It holds heaven and earth together. The seven stages of creation are the seven stages of temple building where the builder will finally come into the temple and take up residence there and take his rest. Within the temple, the final element is created on the sixth day. The image And the image of God is placed there in this perfect temple. And the image that God has created will be how the world sees and worships the Creator. The image, on the one hand, is priestly. It gathers up all the praises of God's creation and it brings those praises to God and presents them before Him. And on the other hand, the image is also that which God presents Himself out into His world of creation. 
Perhaps maybe you can say it's prophetic in that sense. The God of Genesis 1 is the God of heaven and earth. The God who made man in his own image and chooses to work through man in the world as his vice regent. And with this understanding, both the start of John's gospel and the climax of John's gospel have great meaning because he starts in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the climax of his gospel on that Friday, that sixth day of the week, when Pilate, the representative then of the the world's leader would then declare as he brings Jesus out clothed in the royal garment. He says, behold the man. And here Jesus is presented quite unwittingly by Pilate himself as the true image of God. John has already told us That when we behold Jesus, we behold the Father. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. That's what an image enables. The Father is presently working in Jesus in the world. That's what John 5 is all about. As he heals a man on the Sabbath. And then he says, you know, should I not be working because my Father is still working? So must I. The whole of John's Gospel is like that. And the final word that Jesus spoke on the cross in John's Gospel is, it is finished. Echoes back to Genesis 1. When God looked upon all of His creation, it was completed. And then God enters into His rest. As Jesus rested in the tomb on that seventh day, Before the eighth day. Before the new week began. The new week began on the eighth day. And John is writing a new Genesis. He's writing a new creation of heaven and earth. That began on the eighth day when Jesus rose from the grave. And the death of Jesus on the cross reveals to the world that This heaven and earth reality through which the world will see its creator is in Jesus. He is the ultimate temple reality where heaven and earth are joined together in the image, in the man. And we see here on the cross the great love of God for sinners for you. For me. So John begins his gospel in the narrative of Genesis, but he is not long into it before he says, and the word tabernacled among us, and he echoes back into this Exodus event. And with the imagery of the tabernacling among us, John immediately takes us back to the Exodus narrative. When Moses requested to Pharaoh, the dark, evil force, Pharaoh, 
to let God's people go. It was so that they might go and worship Him. We often miss that or somewhat dismiss it as a somewhat disingenuous excuse of which the Word of God would prevent us to do that. It was indeed that they might go and worship Him. As we move forward in the story of the Exodus, God demonstrated His power over all of the gods of Egypt, and He defeats them at every point. And then God puts a distinctive barrier between His people and the world with that fiery glory cloud. He takes His people and baptizes them through the sea, the very waters that would be the destruction of the enemy. And He leads them to Sinai, giving them the law and the narrative, then rapidly moves and draws to the very point, and that is the plans and the construction of the building of the tabernacle. Did you know that that is the emphasis? The drawing out and the redemption of God's people so that the tabernacle may be building. God would then come down and, and live in their very midst. Freeing people from the bondage so they could worship Creator God who now was Redeemer God as well. And the tabernacle was a, a little universe. It was a, a microcosmos. It was echoing back to the Genesis narrative of the garden. And the tent in which the living God came to dwell it was in the midst of His people. And the whole book is now pulling us to this climactic conclusion. That in the very last chapter when the temple the tabernacle was built. And then the glory of God comes and fills the place so that not even Moses could enter. And that glory filling echoes us back to that Sabbath rest when it was finished. And God completed His work and He entered into His rest. It is the rest that He Himself enjoys, that He invites us into, which is the theology of the Sabbath. Creation in principle and in form in the tabernacle was, was renewed, and heaven and earth are now held together once again. And the people of God will follow God wherever God leads them with the glory cloud. And all of this, Genesis 1 and 2 and the Exodus and the, the vision that later Isaiah has in chapter 6 when the glory filled the place and the smoke filled the temple and His glory goes out all of the earth. All of this, John is pulling together in the narrative that leads us right to the foot washing. And he introduces us to the Word made flesh that we might see God's glory. And He's showing us something of a reality. A heaven and earth reality in Jesus. Because Jesus is now in His humanity, in His body is this now micro-universe. And 
And John describes the ultimate exodus in which all of creation will be rescued and the new creation and the birth on that eighth day that's about to take place. After the dark and terrible power of Pharaoh would be defeated once and for all. Genesis and Exodus revealed to us, however, that not everything is going to be just straightforward with that. It was in Genesis 3 that the fall came and the very original and first exile of man was cast out of the garden. It would be through the seed of the woman he would be brought back to eat of the tree of life. Abraham almost throws away the promise in Egypt when he goes and he leaves the, the land of promise and goes to the border and down into Egypt and God intercedes. On the very eve of that building of the tabernacle, God's people are then found in this great sin as they raise up the golden calf and God tells Moses to go down there. And Moses intercedes and once again, the promise is maintained. As the Pentateuch comes forward into the very conclusion in Deuteronomy, it begins to show that the people has still not given up all of their images and the consequences of putting other images at the intersection of heaven and earth will be dire, but God will be faithful. He speaks of kings that will be a part of God's plan, but then instructs the kings of how they need to act to make sure that as representatives of God's power upon the earth, that they too should obey the law. And, and, to, and yet, here they are. Not much time has passed, and they lead the people, not only in their idolatry, but their waywardness away from God. And so then a great exile would have to come, and once again into Babylon they go. And we see this, this being acted out, casting away, bringing back, casting away, bringing back, and now the exile. And God will fill His creation with His glory, but it will come in the casting away and receiving back of His image-bearing people. And ultimately, the casting away and receiving back of their royal representative. That's what's going on here. We read throughout all of Scripture that God's glory will be seen in His temple as we were studying through those post-exilic prophets. That's why it was important for them to rebuild the temple. Because Messiah would come and God's glory would be with Messiah and the glory would fill the temple. We see Solomon's temple echoing back to Exodus 40 when God came and He filled the place. We see Ezekiel's vision corresponding to Isaiah 40 when God's glory would come and fill the place. We see the second temple, maybe not as splendid in the outward appearance, but the thing that was far surpassed the first temple is because God's glory would come and fill the place in the Messiah. The glory and the majesty of God is joined now in tenderness in John 13 as this earthly 
and heavenly temple in the body of Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So tender, as Isaiah had already pointed out, would be he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather up the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young. Washing his disciples' feet. The king of heaven. God himself in flesh. And here was the commencement upon the cross and the subsequent resurrection of this new exodus, of this new Passover, of this new temple, this meeting place between God and man. 400 years after the exile of Babylon, Jesus chose Passover this time and this occasion to resonate all of those truths that were impacted and coming to bear upon this great event. And Caiaphas and the priest were very alarmed. Their role of standing in the temple as image representatives was about to be upstaged once and for all. John draws out in his gospel these profound truths of these earlier narratives that Babel must be overthrown if Abraham's people are to inherit the world. Pharaoh must be overthrown if Abraham's family are to be rescued to worship God. Babylon and all of its gods must be overthrown if the exodus is to be accomplished. God's reign over all of the usurping powers in the fallen world is clear throughout all of Scriptures. It was a battle and a great war that was fought. A bloody war for you and me that God Himself would do through His servant, through His King. God would defeat all of the dark powers and Yahweh would return to Zion. Both of which will occur in the shameful death of the servant upon the cross. And John pulls all of this together as he leads us up to the scene of the foot washing who is the servant, the king that Isaiah spoke of. And John unveils Jesus' glory beginning at the wedding of Cana where this wedding feast symbolizes His own marriage of heaven and earth and God's people in the new creation with great festivity and joy as they return to the garden and they celebrate this wonderful feast with God. We see Jesus, this true image of God, this prophet who, through which God is now taken out into the world and shown the glory of God. This priest through which all of the praises of creation are rounded up and gathered from the mountains to the valleys and then brought back to God. And this great king, this ultimate authority and sovereignty the rule and reign of God over all of the earth who has squelched and put to death all of the powers of darkness and who is light that is reigning. The King of peace. The King of love. 
He's taken all of the mountains and He has taken them down. And He has taken the valleys and He has brought them up so that the glory of God can be seen by all eyes. And the foot washing scene unfolds as the humble servant king washes even Judas's feet. Where the power of darkness will be overthrown by the power of this humble service in love. In the chapter that precedes this one, Jesus claimed in the context of Greeks who were coming to see him that when he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. When Jesus is lifted up, that will be the time that all the dark powers are defeated for both the Jew and the Greek. John gives us that glimpse of that conversation between Pilate and Jesus in the 19th chapter when Pilate then questions him. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Says the arrogant Greek representative leader of the world. To which Jesus replies, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. But Pilate didn't get, and he wouldn't get it, so Jesus wouldn't explain it. Is that foot washing power? That Passover power. The power that overcomes all of the darkness and evil and hatred and death, the transforming power of love. And that while we were sinners, God commended His love toward us and sent His Son and He died for us. And on the cross, that love goes powerfully to work. The image of God is restored as fallen humanity is restored to the perfect image of the Son. And from glory to glory, we are continuing to be transformed into His likeness as we behold His glory, as we behold the image, as we meet with Him in His glory place where heaven and earth come together in Him. In this temple, this, this garden that we ourselves enjoy this day. Because there on the cross, all of the evil had been gathering together to unleash its torrent of wickedness and gathering every evil and wickedness upon Jesus and focusing it all upon Him. And He takes it and He dies with it all. Oh, the surprise. The irony of that victory. That they did not see coming. It does its worst to kill the man, the image, the Son of God. But to the surprise of all, it was the very power there demonstrated and unleashed of God's love that was that which overthrew them 
and destroyed them. The power of love of God overthrows the gods of this world and they are robbed of their power as Jesus gave the mortal blow, putting them in their grave. It brings to new light a great meaning when he says, love your enemies. Therein is power of God in the gospel. And it's not something you can do in your flesh. Jesus took upon himself all the evil that lurks and and looms over mankind and is against us. And he took it and he put it to death. The handwriting that was written against us in the ordinances, he put it to death. Upon the cross. And in Christ we have this foot washing power of love. Even in the face of Judas. We can now do our part in the narrative of the great mission. To carry on this kingdom of God. That he began in our own hearts and carries it throughout the world. In the face of every enemy, in the face of every injustice, in the face of all evil, Christ has already dealt with it all upon the cross. And you have to endure but a season, but nothing like what He took upon Him and put to death on that cosmos-changing day. Jesus is the King. He has traveled through the wilderness and to the heaven and earth temple where now we are restored as image bearers of God to bring all of the praises of creation now and gather them up as His representatives to then present them up into God. That's why it's important for us to always remember with thanksgiving the praise of what God has done in His original creation. And if we are silent, even the rocks will cry that out. But as image bears, we also then take God into the world and we show Him His love and His power and His glory as image bearers. To see this world transformed with the power of the cross. As we go throughout this week, that is my prayer in your life. You come here today defeated and bruised. Remember Jesus' foot washing power. You come here spoiled and stained from the sins of the world. Remember Jesus' cleansing at the foot washing. If you're weak and fearful, remember the cross. Go to the cross this week to find your hope. Go to the cross for your prayers to be answered and heard go to the heaven and earth meeting place in Jesus to meet with God in the presence of his holiness and to bask there in his glory your life is revived at the cross your hope is renewed at the cross, your need to be loved and to sense love is realized at the cross. You find your husband at the cross. Orphans find their fathers at the cross. 
Your joy is restored at the cross. Your power over all the darkness in your life will be found at the cross. The purpose in your life is found at the cross as God restores His image in you through the power of the cross, changing you into the likeness of His perfect image bearer, His Son. Your mission is made effectual at the cross because all authority has now been given to Jesus because of the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross has changed everything. His kingdom has been growing ever since. You are not on the losing side. Evil will not overcome. You cannot be defeated if you are clinging to the cross. Folks, you're now a part of the narrative. You're part of that swelling narrative of which John is even revealed in the 17th chapter before they left that upper room and He prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you out loud where His disciples could see and John could pin it down for us. I pray not only for these, Lord, that You have given me, but I pray on all of those who will believe that they may be one as You and I are one. And so as God has sent Jesus into the world now in the Spirit of God, so sends He you. So catch yourself up and remind yourself of the narrative and the stream of the current that is going down the flow of life and realize there that the the cross is now in our past and we are now seeking seeing on the other side of resurrection, and we have this place, this intimate place, where the glory cloud is among us. The reality in Christ is here. And the veil between God and man, and between heaven and earth, is very thin. And in Jesus, we come right in. May God grant us a full week where our souls are revived and restored. Our love is rekindled where it will grow white hot and never be lukewarm. It all happens at the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, revive us, restore us, and restore the joy of Thy salvation. Renew a right spirit within us. We pray that we would cling to the cross of Jesus that, that we commemorate and remember this week as we then, in the Scriptures, go back into the narrative and find ourselves apart. As we bring the past into our very present experience, we pray the Spirit of God would apply these things and make them living truths that we might know life and know it to the fullest the life that Christ has given us, and that our joy might be full. Lord, we pray you will be glorified in us and through us this week, this day, as we gather around your table shortly. Lord, we pray that you would remove the veil as we enter into the Holy of Holies in this temple where heaven and earth meet and we can enjoy And we can praise and we can give you thanks as we gathered up the praises of creation 
and bring them before your throne. How thankful we are to be restored and forgiven and to be that ambassador and that royal priesthood as your people. We thank you for the great sacrifice and the great power that was unleashed and the great love that we cannot comprehend. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.